Hey, I'm Roberta Blevins, and this is Life After MLM, a podcast where we work to end the stigma of failure in an industry designed for you to fail. Happy Halloween. The stories in this episode contain sensitive subject matter, including details of murders, paranormal experiences, and the abuse of children. Please use your own discretion when listening. Thank you. Welcome to a very special spooky Halloween episode of Life After MLM. I'm so excited to have my guest here today, the beautiful Mary Nadler. We're going to talk about some um, interesting MLM stories. But first, Mary, please say hello and let everybody know who you are. Yeah, I'm Miri Nadler from Ten Bloom Cakes. Um, I have kind of a prolific TikTok and Instagram profile. So um, some of you are coming here from there and are going to be surprised at what you hear. And some of you are coming to me from this place and will be surprised what you see. So that will be fun. <laughs> we'll get to know each other a little better. I love it when like different worlds collide it's so fun because in the comments people are like oh my god it's two of my favorite people how did you I know, right? meet so I'm really <laughs> excited for the comments on this I know. episode so very briefly because this is not the focus of this episode but let everybody know like how MLM came into your life and your brief uh, experience with it Sure. I just, um, you know, I've been listening to your podcast over the last few weeks and I feel like my story doesn't really have anything to add to the Luro story, but there's something I'm like really into history and there's the best stories come out of the late 1800s, right? Because it was like, everything was like a new innovation, but a freight train of no restriction. And there's one story, it's probably my favorite story in American history. And it reminds me of you as I was prepping for this, I was like, I, Roberta has to hear this. So the story is about a man named John Romulus Brinkley. He was born in 1885 in North Carolina. He uh, was born to like a traveling preacher slash medical person. And um, the guy had like wives all over the country and stuff like that. He, so he, lear- he learned how to grift at a really young age. So he became like a grifter, traveling medicine man. And he claimed to like have Quaker cures for things like snake oil, like everybody did at the turn of century. It was like, awesome. You know, it was like these vaudeville shows. So he, um, there's stuff that happens and he enrolls in the college of eclectic medicine in Chicago, which is obscure as you might think it would be, but he wants to, uh, basically specialize in glandular extraction, which, you know, the glands are like, I don't know, your lymph nodes, also testicles. Even at the turn of the century, a really like important, important medical problem was uh, impotence, right? So like the poorest man was willing to spend money on impotence. So he went around, I know you don't know how this relates to you. This is the best part. (laughs) So I love that a story about a snake oil salesman selling a cure to impotent men will eventually circle back to me. (laughs) Yep. And so he um, creates like this potion in 1913 and with these, all these ads that like with these injections that are going to cure men in South Carolina and he sells them for $25 a piece, which is like $700 in today's money. And he's 
revealed as a scammer. He's run out on a rail out of South Carolina. He's um, put in jail for you know practicing medicine without a license. He gets out in 1914 and he moves to Kansas where he buys a medical license or medical degree from uh, the Kansas City Eclectical Medical University, which is- <laughs> It's like, Dr. Gary Young, is that you? <laughs> right. Which is a diploma mill. So you basically pay them 10, to 10 bucks and then you can practice medicine in eight states. That's like what the deal was. So he sets up a clinic in a place called uh, Milford, Kansas. This is where it gets nuts. Excuse the, uh, the oh, pun there. But <laughs> so the way the story goes, and this is according to him, because he paid somebody to write this biography for him of like all of his escapades through life so that he could hype himself up. He... Um, he has a man come in and says, you know, Dr. Brinkley, I'm having trouble pleasing my wife. And uh, is there anything that you could help me to about that? And he said, oh, gee, I can't think of anything. The man looks out the window and he sees two goats going at it. And he says, man, if I could just have the energy of that goat. And then he's like, if you could just put <laughs> those goats testicles in me and I could please my wife. And so Dr. Brinkley laughs it off and he goes, no, I'm serious. So he does the, he does the testicular implant into this man. And supposedly the man goes home and he impregnates his wife who, you know, birth is just like thrilled, I guess. I don't know. And um, story gets around town. So he starts selling this goat transplant surgery for $750, which is $10,000 in today's money. Oh my God. And um, so, and then he pays that guy to like publish this biography of him about like how he was rejected from Johns Hopkins and he has all this new whatever. And so he would give this copy of this book to anybody that went into his clinic and he, nobody knew him there. And so this is all they knew of him was this biography he paid somebody to tell about him and um he also claims that like several presidents have gotten the surgery and you know stuff like that <laughs> so he's um yeah he's like really really good at marketing and so he makes a fortune and he builds up the town he builds him a hospital he builds him a school he builds him all these things and he decides he's really likes the idea of radio so he builds uh, Kansas's first radio station, which was the fourth in the US and the most powerful uh, wattage in the world and could be heard across the entire United States. It was called KF, was it KFKB? Okay. And he decided to use it to sell his elixirs and his, um, his like testicular implants. Oh, and did, I don't, I forgot to tell you, he actually had like a herd of goats in the back of his clinic so that patients could go and pick out the goat that they wanted. <laughs> you guys, I know this is a podcast, you can't see my face, but like my <laughs> face is just, it's my face. I'm just in complete shock while you're telling me this story. This is absolutely true. 
This is absolutely true. So in 1923, he starts this radio station and he does, but he starts, he basically invents the infomercial where he is, um, you know, talking like, and he was like the Dr. Ruth of his time. Like people would write in and say the sexual problems that they were having. And then they would, you know, he, he would prescribe them his elixir over the radio. And that was a real prescription that they could go and they could get something for. And then he also used a lot of Bible references to, pe to make people comfortable with him. That affinity he, fraud, man. Yeah. And then he also really loved country music, which only, only certain regions of, it was not popular in the U.S. at the time. Like people hadn't even heard it, but only certain regions of the country listened to. So he introduced the country to country music. Isn't that amazing? Like he's, so he's this, incredible, like, right? There's so many domino effects to this guy's grift. Yeah. It's amazing. So this guy named Morris Fishbein, this is you, Morris Fishbein, he's the editor for the Medical Journal of the American Medical Association. And he, all he talks about is these quacks that are selling this crazy stuff. And so he is able to basically get this guy's uh, medical license taken away and his radio license taken away um, through- yeah. Yeah, legal means, because he goes and he approaches the American Medical Association. So this guy's like, well, okay, I'm going to run for governor of Kansas. He almost wins, but he went in as a write-in candidate. But they actually said that, like, if you wrote his name just a little bit incorrectly, it wouldn't count, like they threw out your ballot. So he doesn't win. He's like, screw this. I'm going to Mexico. So he moves to Del Rio, Texas. This is in the, de like the depression, right? Or like just before the depression. He creates a radio station just over the border. Um, it's the largest radio station in the world. It has a million wattage. It can be heard in 17 different countries. And I don't know if you've ever watched the show, The Adventures of Pete and Pete. Oh my God, um, obviously <laughs> so. Yeah, so you know the mom who had the metal plate in her head? Oh my God, so many. <laughs> All I can think is I am already the strongest man in the world. <laughs> the world. <Yeah. laughs> Stu the bus driver, he was my favorite. <laughs> but um, Did we just tell everybody how old we are? <laughs> I, yes, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> so um so the mom had a metal plate in her head and she would constantly pick up radio stations right so this is actually where this comes from because people would be able to hear this radio station in their fillings and <laughs> it would come through like the bed springs of their uh their beds and stuff like that and so anyway he um starts doing prostate surgeries down there, but then he comes up with his real moneymaker, which is something called Formula 1020. He claims it does the same thing as the goat surgery, but it's like six injections for $100 in the depression, okay? He makes $12 million in three years selling this During on the, the radio. During the Great Depression. During the Great Depression because he was poaching on desperate people, right? Wow. And, 
Yeah. So and not just desperate people, desperate men. Absolutely. Absolutely. Like they could not afford bread for their families, but they definitely could get some of those injections. Right. Well, so yeah. <laughs> other things like autographed copies of like a picture of Jesus Christ and like, um, yeah, he was autographing photos of Jesus and selling them with his own autograph on them. Yeah. It, yep. I didn't know that was something that anybody could do. Yeah. <laughs> Apparently in 1930s, you could do it, but check this out. So he also gave a lot of country music stars their start. Like he moved the Carter family, like June Carter to play live on his radio station. That's that's yeah. wild. Yeah, so he had this, you know, real influence on American culture, right? But good old Morris Fishbein comes again. Oh, and yes, he does. He, he is just writing article after article about how horrible this guy is, but there's nothing he could do about it because his radio station is in Mexico. But because uh, Brinkley is such a flaming narcissist, he sues Morris Fishbein for libel. So I can't even, he, he could have just lived his life. You know what I mean? And there was nothing that they could do. But he decides to like sue him for libel. His one critic, the one person that's talking about him, he has to go out and sue him. Yeah, exactly. And then, so he gets this like, really high class, expensive lawyers, huge team. And uh, there's Morris Fishbein with his lawyer, you know, who's <laughs> just an individual, right? No money. And um, he gets all of these witnesses of how they're going to say how he, um, you know, uh, did such great work for them and how their testicular implant works so well and all this stuff. So early, but early on in the trial, the judge decides that none of those um, customers are experts and they can't testify. So what happens is, is Morris gets his experts up. They say that this elixir that, that he's injecting, it's cost hundred bucks. It's like a thousand parts water to one part blue dye. Um, they found that he wasn't transplanting testicles. He was just taking like a little sliver of a goat testicle and just like sticking it in there and closing it up and not doing anything with it, all this stuff. Meanwhile, all of his fans, all of his you know, patients are in the courtroom listening to this testimony. Let's just put it this way. The man died like in 1942 penniless because he was sued for infections it was like the scales had come off, you know what I mean? And so I kind of, I kind of feel like, you know, the Washington lawsuit was like that first like pull of the licenses. And then this documentary is like this libel case where they were narcissistic enough to go on and talk about, you know, their lives and come off as total fools. And so, you know, cheers to you. And I'm just going to say that, like, what I, I know you always ask this, but what I learned from being in LuLaRoe is to never, ever, ever make a decision out of desperation. Yeah. 
That's, a, anyone, that's great. I mean, that's absolutely true. Anyone wanting to wanting you to make a decision out of desperation is a po is poaching is like is predatory. Absolutely. I have a hard enough time like cutting and coloring my client's hair and really extreme things when they go through breakups. I'm like, let's wait an appointment on this guys. Right. So right. like, yes, like don't do anything out of like vulnerability and desperation. Give yourself some time to think about it. Yes. And for me, I was working at like a cleaning company during their marketing. So I was basically talking to moms on Twitter every day who were, cause it was like an organic cleaning product or whatever and about like hashtag mom life. And I was like, my baby was at home and I was at work and I felt desperate. I, I, I couldn't do that. You know, it was so jealous, you know? And the thing is, is that I know there are a lot of people that come on here and they say, they tend to lean one way more or less politically. I tend to be on the more libertarian side, but you know, when I was, when we had our first child, uh, his middle name, um, we wanted it to either be Rockefeller or Roosevelt. And I love Rockefeller. He's one of my heroes, but he, and people think of him as like money at all costs kind of guy, you know, the monopoly guy, but he wasn't necessarily, he wasn't greedy. Actually, when I read his autobiography, he was actually um, like, I, I, when I read his autobiography, I was like, I think this guy is autistic. Oh, I, that's why he isn't thinking of people as human beings. That's why he doesn't, that's why he seems so measured. He's obsessed with the efficiency of making the money, not the money itself. Like but Elon Musk. Perhaps, yes. But the thing is, is that um, capital, I'm a firm believer in, in capitalism. I'm a business owner myself, but you need that, Rose, that Teddy Roosevelt as like that those boundaries and limitations to make it work and because these runaway freight trains are really funny stories but it actually hurt a lot of people and in the case of john brinkley it killed people that got infections and things like that and um so anyway that's kind of i i don't want to go into all the more details of my journey with lula row because i feel like i don't know i feel like it everybody kind of hit Exact. I wasn't like a major person there. Right. But, but it's like everything that we've talked about, you can corroborate all of those stories. You're like, yep, that's course. true. Yep. That happened. Mm -hmm. Of course, I saw yeah. that too. Absolutely. And so um, anyway, I just think that um, it's, it's possible because a lot of people I've heard talk about like, oh, well, you know, they're all like Republicans that work for these MLMs. And I'm like, that's not true. Everybody's, everybody's in the bag for it. And we all need both sides to balance oh, absolutely. together. Absolutely. Both sides, both sides of the aisle are, are rife with MLM donations from the DSA. It's, it's, it's right. wild. It's absolutely. wild. You guys, it really is like Bill Clinton. He took DSA money, Donald mm -hmm. Trump, uh, it, it's, it's wild it, on both sides. We've got, we've got MLM sympathizers in the white house. Currently we had MLM sympathizers in the previous administration and the administration after that, the Bushes weren't innocent. Reagan wasn't innocent. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's wild. It really it, is. I mean, Madeline Albright <laughs> promoted Herbalife, the first female secretary of state. You're like, yes, get in there, do it breaking that glass ceiling. And she's like, I really enjoy the Herbalife 
uh, shakes. And you're just like, for real, Madeline Albright's a boss, babe. Really cool. That's awesome. Thank you so much for, the, for uh, helping so much in this movement of, you know, like just female empowerment in general. You're like, awesome. Great. Thank you so much. Yeah. But you know, there's a quote from one of the producers I want to tell you. There's a movie about this a documentary. It's called Nuts! Exclamation point. There's another movie from 1987 called Nuts. It's not that. This is a different one. But this is what they say. They say, I believe that more than any other single human quality, it is our love of great stories that makes us so endlessly susceptible to being conned. We believe the stories we want or need to believe, and we believe anyone who tells them to us. Con men know this. So do politicians, propagandists, pitchmen, cult leaders, televangelists, pickup artists, and manipulators of all kind, including documentary filmmakers. And um, so that said, I want to say that, you know, as much as like this <laughs> grifter John Brinkley is such, I mean, it's a funny story and it's a sad story. He did make contributions to our world that are, I are good. And I, I do think that when I look back at LuLaRoe, there were a lot of women that never felt comfortable in clothes that were for the first time. You know, they basically made it uh, possible for people to claim like, I just want to be comfortable all the time. Whatever messaging was coming from the top or whatever, you saw it in your customers' faces. And I think that that's going to be um, a lasting mark that they've made on America, you know, at least. And I, and I hope I'm here for it because I just wear t-shirts and, you know, yoga pants all the time. So, <laughs> yeah, um, I, I did like that about LuLaRoe, that there was so much emphasis on the size inclusivity and comfort of all shapes and sizes. And I, I loved that. That was one of the biggest things for me because yeah, being somebody who's always fluctuated in my weight. I've, I've run the gamut of sizes and shapes at different times in my life and, and different ways that my body looked. And for a long time, I was really uncomfortable with the way that I looked. I was really uncomfortable with the way that clothes fit me. Um, and LuLaRoe did help bring that confidence back. And when people said I look so cute, it really did. It helped me bring my confidence back. And then basically what happened was I got so much confidence that I was like, what the heck am I wearing? <laughs> and I exactly. moved out of it. Um, <laughs> but yes, I mean, LuLaRoe really did bring a lot of confidence back into a lot of broken women. Um, and I, I will 100% give them that. I see that a lot of times in the comment section of people that are still defending LuLaRoe. Well, I had fun and I made friends and, and the clothing made me feel beautiful. And I, yeah, I'll give them that. I made cool friends. I had really great adventures. But, you know, there's there's a, a, a weight of things, right? Sure. You have to yeah. determine whether the weight of this is worth it. And at the end of the day, the weight of LuLaRoe was not worth what I was going through. The, the good did not outweigh the bad at all. And even yeah. though the good was amazing, the bad was so bad. Yeah. And it's sad that something as important to feeling comfortable in your own skin was at the cost of all of this shit show, <laughs> you know, Ugh, my PTSD is coming back. Stop. Right. <laughs> well, thank you so much for telling me that story because that's amazing. And I feel like Morris Fishbein was the originator of facts are not attacks. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. 
Exactly. So anyway, I just, I wanted to get that out of the way because I was like, ah, what do I have to contribute about my own story? I love that. I love that you were so prepared. You're like, I don't really want to talk about LuLaRoe. You've had all the talking points. Let's talk about this instead. <laughs> <laughs> I could just say I love micro history because it's like just like a peek into a, a period of time, a very specific something that you learn so many other things from. And so anyway, I, I was like, oh, I shouldn't bring in history, but this is not a boring story. <laughs> I mean, I love history mm -hmm. and I love learning about little micro history like that. Um, it's, it's fascinating to me. It's, it is. I love it. Absolutely. History yeah, is one of my like, favorite topics. Every time I'm like, why isn't this another movie? But then this one was, so like, I don't think it would. Yeah, that's amazing. I'm going to have to check it out. Um, okay. So the, the reason that you are on the show, let's get to that. Mm -hmm. So you have a murder story <laughs> for this, this uh, Halloween day. So um, yeah, your email, you told me you're like, I have a murder story and I need to tell you, and I knew it would be a perfect Halloween episode. So let's get into it. Tell yeah. us the story of the the Tupperware murder. Yeah. So, and also just before I talk about it, um, if I at all sound flip, like this is a real thing that happened and it happened to me. And um, I actually didn't remember it until maybe a couple of years ago. And then um, ever since I'm like, why don't I have any feelings about it? Like I feel serious. Like I know I was traumatized, um, but it's, I feel very numb about it. So um, it's not like, I only want to tell this to bring, to highlight the story of this particular person who wouldn't, I mean, you will not be able to find this on the internet unless it's original documents. So um, when I was little, I lived in a town called Avenel, which is like, if you're going up the five in California, after you go through the grapevine, you go for like maybe two hours, you see Kettleman City or Harris Ranch and you just see cows. Um, so like if you're going north, uh, Avenel is just like over the foothills on the left or to the west. It is, there's nothing there. Yeah, that's uh, for most people that are unfamiliar with California, that's like central California, like farm territory. That's like where all the garlic farms are. Right. And then in the foothills, there's like oil, a little bit of oil. So, um, but like, this isn't even like near crops, really. This is a prison town and it was tiny. I mean, I don't know how many people they have today, but I feel like it was maybe a thousand people when I lived there. And the only people that lived there were people who worked at the prison and their families people who were waiting for somebody to get out, people who were, and then I would say the majority of the town was like migrant workers. Um, so especially in the nineties, there were programs that would have people come legally from Mexico to work the fields. I don't know if this happened in, I don't know. In any case, they would come back and forth from Mexico to this region so that they could work the fields. And it was like a government program. and. Um, so that was the majority of the town. I grew up speaking Spanish. Um, and 
the rest of the people in the town were just kind of like wanderers. I don't know. I don't, I don't know a nice way to put this. Um, just transients, transients, stragglers, right? And, people just um, passing through. We have them here too. Exactly. And, and it was because this is such a small town, you know, it was really cheap to live in. And by the way, I just visited for the first time in like 30 years or last year, nothing has changed. Like nothing, everything I remember that was like the thing that was run down when I was a kid was still run down. Isn't um, it wild like going through those tiny California towns? Cause we'll do it through road trips and you go through and you're like, this is this a ghost town? But there's yeah. literal people there. Buildings run down, like for rent signs from like the eighties still in the yeah. windows. It's wild. It, it was her, it, it's, I don't know. And it was like, everything looked exactly the same, except they had a subway. So I was in this little town. My dad is a correctional officer. And by the way, because of just the makeup of the town, if your parent was working, worked for the prison, you were the richest kid in town. That's kind of like how it worked. Um, and we were not rich at all. It was just, that's how it was. We moved there when I was five and my mom is the most extroverted person that you'll ever meet in your life. She makes friends with everybody. We lived in a house in North Carolina that my parents owned like a farmhouse for three years. And I met a few people and I just moved out of there and my parents moved in and my mom knows everyone, everyone. Oh, you know, Leslie down the street. No, I don't know Leslie down the street, you know, but that's who she is. She knows, she makes everybody her business and she knows everybody and she's a real connector. We were in this uh, church, like a Baptist church, which there were people of all different faiths there. It was just kind of like the place where you went and connected with people and whatnot. So there was my, like my mom and her church ladies. And that's how we met people. We did Girl Scouts and, you know, piano lessons or whatever, you know, ballet, all met through that group. And it was like the same group of moms. They always did MLM parties. Like it was a part of my childhood. And I was always taught like stuff from MLMs was special. You know, um, there was, there was a company, was something interiors. I can't remember the name of it, but it was well, like, Scott's it's like home interiors. Something, Yes. I yes. Think it's home interiors. And they were like all obsessed with that. Yes, Beauty the wall control. sconces. Yes, the sconces. And then like sconces. little ceramic <laughs> figures. And um, have you heard of beauty control? <laughs> yes, beauty with an eye. Yes, yes. So beauty control was big. And, um, you know, Pampered Chef. And there were just like tons and tons. I like the more I think about it, the more I'm like. Oh, Did you ever do any of those creative memories stamping parties? And yes, like, creative yeah. memories. <laughs> we had so many stamp parties growing up. And I was like, why do I need to cut out all this paper to remember this trip that I went on? I don't know. So we were always doing that. That was like what to do socially. There was nothing there. Yes, and I remember like we would have parties and we would go over and do these like you would make a scrapbooking page you're like bring over like five pictures and you would make yes. a, a single scrapbooking page for your scrapbook right because they wanted you to buy the yeah. whole book yeah you needed the party. book and all yeah and you'd go to these parties and make one page and then they'd be like and now you need five hundred dollars worth of all this other right. stuff too to complete the book you started I mean you can't how can you even be like in society and not so 
we were never, my mom never sold for any of these. My mom was a seamstress. She had her own, she was a substitute teacher and she, um, you know, had her own deal making clothes for people when it was cheap to do that. Um, but she would always host these. She thought that they were great. You know, they were so much fun. You could get together. Look, my mom even had like a bunco night. So she was like really into the ladies getting together. Um, in first grade, I am in uh, this, you know, my first grade class. It was 1989. There, I really did age myself. And um, there was this kid there, and I don't want to say his real name. I'm going to call him David. Um, and he and I were like the top kids in the class. So we actually had our own kind of section where desk work, they'd give us different worksheets and stuff. And he was what I would describe as like, he, first of all, he was not the dirty kid in class, but he was almost like a dirty kid in class. So um, he was in that transient drifter category. So my mom meets David's mother, Sally. And um, Sally, what, this is what I can remember of her. She was very thin, like, like heroin thin. Um, she had very stringy, greasy, dark hair, and she wore big glasses and she was rather, she smoked a lot and she was, I don't know, rough. She was just like a rough exterior, not very motherly. And Sally sold Tupperware. And so Sally wasn't really in with the moms. Um, so my mom, who is the connector, she wants to bring everybody in. She goes, Sally, I'll, let me host a Tupperware party for you. You'll make some money and um, we'll have all these ladies over and you'll meet them. And um, we're going to have like a great time and you'll get connected, blah, blah, blah. So she does. And she has this party. My mom bought a ton of Tupperware. My mom actually, like we kept it my entire childhood. Um like it was, you know, those little, those things where you put the cereal in, where your mom would like put in like 90% kicks and like 10% cocoa puffs or whatever, and like mix it all up. We definitely did that. So we had these, and the thing is like Tupperware doesn't really last forever. Like you can smell Tupperware after a while. And so I don't know, like I really associate that smell with this like time, but, um, so Sally had five kids and um, she had three boys and two girls. David was the youngest and he was the one that was my age. And um, my mom was always just kind of like trying to throw money her way. So um, she babysat my little sister a couple times. And, uh, you know, my sister wasn't really comfortable with Sally. She was more comfortable with like a different family that watched her. And so my mom didn't do that too much, but my mom was just always trying to like bring her into the fray, right? Um, there's all these bombs. And he, this is what you need to understand about this town because there were so many migrant workers, there were few people that spoke English. And then there were, uh, and, did, and then those people typically didn't speak Spanish. And then there are people that spoke Spanish and didn't speak English. So I wouldn't say it was a racial divide. It was literally a cultural divide um, of, not being able to communicate with each other. So it was kind of like, oh, we're all the English speakers. Um, let's get our kids in ballet or let's do this thing. 
let's go to the zoo, whatever. And so Sally never really fit in. Um, she kept close contact with my mom, but she didn't really with anybody else. And there was something that happened and she went to Mexico and this sounds, this is going to sound really weird because I categorize her as kind of this poor transient drifter type person. And, but they went on a vacation to Mexico. It makes, this part of my story makes no sense. But like I said, there's no information on this. And this is really from my memory as a child, which the story starts when I was six years old and ends when I was 10 years old. So, um, so they go to Mexico. This was in like 1992. And uh, my mom receives a call from Sally and says, uh, you know, I need you to urgently call the church ladies and I need them to pray for my daughter. She's very, very sick. And my mom's like, oh, what do you think happened? She's like, oh, I think she got food poisoning. So they pray, they come back, you know, and the daughter experiences a miraculous recovery. And um, so everything's fine, you know, and they're going living their life. And eventually my mom gets a call from Sally again and says, you won't believe this, um, but whatever was in Mexico must have followed us. Denise has died. And what? Yeah. So, and my mom was like, oh, that's so, that's so horrible. I can't even imagine what that's like. Denise was only 11 years old. Um, I wonder what kind of infection she got. Was it a strange virus? You know, all these questions that, um, any mom would have. And my mom says, well, I'm going to do everything I can to help you. So my mom is a seamstress and she makes the funeral dress for Denise. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And I remember, I, I actually remember a picture of her, of Denise, because my mom had to have it for some kind of seamstress thing she was doing. I don't really quite remember and you were in first grade at this time I was in uh, let's see it was 1982 I skipped third grade I must have been in fourth grade so you're um, nine or ten years old at this time right so not too much younger than Denise was when she passed right so that probably already is like oh my god like that's a girl that's my age like what happened yeah well I I just thought I I the only person I know I had known that had died was my grandfather. He was like in his seventies. So it felt very destabilizing, right? It felt unsafe. It felt like, you know, I could go to Mexico and eat something and die. Right. And, um, so the funeral happens. My mom does all the arrangements. Like she does everything for this family, you know, let Sally like cry on her shoulder then things changed and I was told that um you know Sally wasn't who we thought she was so this is what I am gathering what had happened based on public documents that I can find online Sally had called 911 and the police came and the other children started telling 
um, the police that there was abuse in the home. And particularly the uh, daughter, Crystal, who I don't know is older or younger, but definitely under 14 said, she killed my sister. So then Sally produces two pieces of literature. The first one is a suicide note by Denise. And the second one is a journal from Denise that, um, you know, basically accounts of her, like, you know, not doing well or feeling more and more depressed. And both were in her handwriting. So it was like, okay, we have one of the kids telling us that she killed Denise, but then we have a suicide note. And so the, whoever the chief of police was, was a freaking genius because I found out about something called linguistic forensics. Cause he gets this guy who is an expert in linguistic forensics. And basically it's just, basically is like the, the theory that you write exactly like you talk. Absolutely. I love linguistics and this is how they caught the Unabomber. Is that right? Interesting. Basically, they wanted to look over Sally's tapes when she was at the police station to compare, to make like, figure out little idiosyncrasies of how she talked. So they looked over those tapes and they compared it to the notes. And what they did, found out was that Sally had very specific talking patterns. For example, she never used contractions except for the word don't, but everything was does not, cannot, is not, I have, that kind of thing. And then the second thing, and this is probably more of like the nail in the coffin, was that she always used past perfect tense. So instead of saying, he wrote me, she would write, he had written me. So they look at that and compare it to the suicide note and they compare it to the journal entry, which are in Denise's handwriting, but they found the exact same patterns. And what they discovered was that she had made Denise write out her suicide note and her journal entry per the instructions of Sally before she was killed. Oh my God, how sick. Yeah, it's really like, how horrible of a person do you have to, like, I, this is not like a crime of passion, right? Like this is like. So premeditated. Right. And so, and the sister, Crystal said that she crushed up some pills and put it in Denise's yogurt and made Denise eat it. So but why do you ever wonder how much of your personal data is out there on the internet just for anyone to find? I promise it's more than you think. Your name, contact info, social security number, home address, even information about your family members. It's all being compiled by data brokers and openly sold online. This can lead to a lot of problems, including identity theft, phishing attempts, harassment, and unwanted spam calls. But now you can protect your privacy with Delete Me. 
Signing up for the service is super easy. Just provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted, and their experts take it from there. They send you regular personalized privacy reports showing what info they found, where they found it, and what they removed. I got my report and I was floored with the results. Of the 105 data brokers they checked, 83 of them had my data. Delete Me then removed 173 listings of my personal data off the internet, and they make sure that it stays off too. Take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me at a special discount just for our listeners. Get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash MLM and use promo code MLM at checkout. The only way to get the 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash MLM and enter code MLM at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash MLM code MLM. Head over to quince.com and grab yourself a little something something and support the show by supporting our sponsors. The weather's getting warmer, so it's time to say goodbye to jackets and sweaters and say hello to lightweight fabrics and classic styles. I have been taking advantage of the beautiful weather and getting outside for daily walks, and I cannot say enough good things about the Flow Knit High Rise Boyfriend Jogger from Quince. Seriously, running errands, doing school pickups, swinging by the farmer's market, or taking Jaja for a stroll around the lake, these bad boys are versatile. I love the deep pockets, the high waistband, and the internal hidden drawstring. They're quick drying, moisture wicking, antimicrobial, and the four-way stretch makes them so comfortable. They're made with 88% recycled polyester and the Global Style Standard Certified Yarn dramatically lowers environmental impact by diverting landfill and ocean-bound plastic. Not to mention using recycled claim standard approved dyeing, washing, and manufacturing processes with low water and eco-friendly dyes. They have become an absolute favorite, and you can save up to 59% off the high-end counterpart by shopping with Quince. Throw on a cotton modal scoop neck tee and some sneakers, and you've got a perfect, effortless outfit. Get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com MLM for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash MLM to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash MLM. Right. So like Sally gets put under arrest and um, more information comes out. So it turns out, and this is what I remember. I don't know exactly for sure about the boys, but the three boys were her sons, the two girls, and this is where it gets really sick. The two girls were foster children. Oh my God. I was, I was worried that you're going to say something like that. Yeah. My mom always told me as a kid that she kidnapped them, but so I'm glad I looked that up because they were actually foster children, foster sisters, and she kept them as slaves in her home to wait on her sons and wait on her. They slept in the floor in the bathroom. Um, They were sexually assaulted, but not for like a because there's, there's like this whole uh, appeal based on it, but it wasn't for sexual gratification. It was just for torture pur- purposes. Like that makes so, it any better, right? Right, exactly. And they, I've seen the words like um, pull cues and mallets and things like that. Oh my God. Yeah. Uh, anyway, she was uh, in 1993 and... October 5th, 1993, she was found guilty um, of murdering her 11-year-old daughter, 
Denise, or 11-year-old foster daughter, Denise, and um, for involuntary servitude of Crystal and for sexually abusing both girls. Um, and she was sentenced to life without parole plus 50 years and eight months. And she's now in um, Chowchilla Women's Correctional Facility in California. I know exactly where that is. Yeah. And so the girl, the surviving sister, I understand she was adopted by some, by people and changed her name. Um, I don't know what happened to the boys. And that's why I didn't want to say the name of the, the real name of David, um, because I mean, this is like, I feel like when I'm telling this, because I have no other information, this is my story and how I related it, related to it as a child. And I'm sure that they all have their own story about this that's much more tragic and hor horrific. Um, but for me, the first thing that I thought of was she watched my sister. She babysat. Yeah, like she was like, yes. She was invited into my home. And did your mom have Tupperware parties for her in your home? Yes, at least one. And um, like the amount of access that she had to not just me, but a lot of my friends and my family was, uh, was a lot. <laughs> and, um, I think that when we, so when I think about like multi-level marketing, where you're supposed to do parties in people's homes and stuff, I mean, how many times do you really know the person coming over? that's going to tell you about this great opportunity. You know what I mean? Like, I know a lot of times it's for your friends, but sometimes you're just trying to give somebody a break or like meet somebody new or whatever. And um, I don't want to frighten anybody, but like the amount of access that you give to people when you're like a lonely mom of young kids is incredible. I remember after I had my, um, my first son, I was like in this LA mom's group or something because I lived in LA at the time. And I asked for advice on something. And then this woman pops up in my DMs and it's like, hey, hon, how are you? And I'm like, I'm desperate for a friend. Desperate, you know? And like, then she goes into her, she's like, well, I bet you want to get that baby weight off. And um, uh, no, never say that. That's the worst. Don't ever say that to people ever. Yeah. And I said, you know what I have, I literally told her I have so much going on because I actually have cerebral palsy, like pregnancy was really tough. And so I'm really not concerned about my weight right now. And it was like, oh, bye, you know? And, um, I think she was selling beach body or something like that. But I also heard of like this woman who like, it was one of those, you know, stories that you viral stories you read on Facebook about like um, this woman that had a stillborn baby and she was at the gym and um, she, you know, had the stretch marks, right? And this woman like left a note on her locker, like, hey mama, I see those stretch marks, get rid of it with, it works, you know? And so I think that sometimes we talk about it from the perspective of like, oh, those are such cringy things I did. But when you are like a young mom and you just want to like create community and create community for your kids, the amount of 
the, the amount you're willing to expose is is like, is real and it's terrifying. Yes. I mean, absolutely. And I think we've learned that this month on the podcast, there were so many stories shared in October about be careful what you put out there, be careful what you agree to be careful what you say yes to and who you invite into your home and who you invite into your social media, Mm -hmm. because you know, like predators look just like everybody else and really nefarious, dirty, nasty predators know how to continue to look just like everybody else for a lot longer. Mm -hmm. They hide in plain sight. Yep. And they prey on people who are in a desperate situation. And it's like, I mean, this is going to sound like really extreme, but it's like Sally worked for an MLM and she literally, she literally preyed on children that were in a desperate situation. And um, I mean, it's just something that like, I can't, as an adult, so I, so I call, like I said, I forgot about it for a long time. And then it kind of just came back to my memory. And um, I called my mom. I was like, mom, do you remember this woman named Sally? And she sold Tupperware. She's like, oh yeah, she murdered her daughter. I was like, oh my God. Mom. Right. I feel the same way when I asked my mom about stuff that happened when I was a kid, I was like, do you remember this person? Um, in fact, there was a, there was a small town murder uh, when I grew up. And, um, oddly enough, this happened about a week ago. She was like, look at this post on Facebook. She's like, does it remind you of anything? And it was this person that, that had posted that they had seen it. They had seen someone on this road. They're like, Hey, does anybody know about this woman on this road? There's this woman standing on the road. Um, and, and, and I, I stopped to help them. And then when I got out of the car, like I couldn't find them, they were wearing this, this thing, like, did I just see a ghost? Like, what the heck, you know? And they posted it in our local thing. And my mom comes to me and she goes, read this. What's it remind you of? And I was like, uh, a ghost. I said, it sounds like a woman in white. <laughs> she mm-hmm, goes, right. And she goes, look at the address. And I looked at the address and I completely forgot. And she goes, you know, she tells me, she goes, that's where so-and-so was murdered. And I said, oh my God. And it, like, it reminded me, it was, there was a really quick little tangent here. Uh, I grew up in this town called Hamul. It's in California. It's like very, very close to the border, uh, very close to Tecate, Mexico. And um, there was a man in our town who was a naval officer who murdered his wife and buried her in the backyard and then planted her car down the road and like had this whole, like she was having an affair. And the next door neighbor was like, he owned the feed store in town. He was like, dude, she, she's buried in the backyard. And he kept telling everybody and nobody would listen. And one day, finally the cops came to the house and they knocked on the door and the daughter answered the door. And she said, are you here to dig up my mommy? Yeah. Like he wrapped her up in the bed sheets and buried her in the backyard. And they, they um, had forensic evidence because of like satellite imaging. They could see that the dirt had been disturbed and they went right to the spot and they, they unburied her and, and he's now in prison, but yeah, someone, I apparently, I mean, if you believe in it, then you believe in it, but somebody was like, Hey, I saw this woman. And my mom's like, it's her, huh? And I said, possibly like, that's literally the road she was murdered. Like that's where they live. I seriously like that. We went Happy Halloween, everybody. <laughs> I know we went in the middle of the day, but I was like, we better not see Denise. We're going to get here when, we, when I visited. But I, because I just like the picture that I have in my mind of her is so like, it, it does haunt me. That's for sure. 
And, you know, it's sad because it's like nobody knows this story and maybe part of it is because the family was poor. Maybe part of it was because the girls were foster girls or who knows, like who knows why certain stories get on the news and why certain stories don't. I was thinking it had to do something with like the OJ Simpson case, but that didn't happen until 1994. And then it's like the riots happened in 1982. So it's not like- just a really wild time the early 90s in California for sure so much stuff happened for sure and I mean even Heaven's Gate happened in the 90s in California yeah I know it was 97 but still like yes I've been learning more about them oh my goodness so so crazy I do I do enjoy learning about Colts and then it's like I actually started because I was following you on TikTok and I started listening to your podcast because you mentioned that you had um, somebody on talking about the connection between Mormonism and MLMs. And um, and I was like, okay, I need to listen to that because I know so many Mormons now that I was in Little Row, you know. But in general, just the, the control of um, that that is synonymous with you know different kinds of religions and cults and what the things that they tell you and uh, so I was like okay I'm going to rewatch Leah Remini's you know like Scientology the aftermath and then I'm like <gasps> making all these connections I've heard that too you know so um I've only been in one MLM and it was LuLaRoe and I honestly didn't know it was an MLM when I signed up and I was mortified when I found out what I'm like, right? I, mean, I know. dollars, so I'm going to do this. Um, well, I'll have to, uh, I, I'm going to have to recommend a book, uh, mm-hmm. Cultish by Amanda Montel. It is fantastic. Mm-hmm. She's coming on the show. Um, uh, she's incredible, but the book Cultish is incredible. And there's an entire chapter about boss babes and MLMs and being cults. It's incredible. They talk about Heaven's really? Gate. They talk about Jonestown. They talk about Amway. They talk about all kinds of things. Amanda is amazing. So Cultish is an incredible book. I'll throw, I'll throw a link in the show notes to that. Cause, uh, I read it on the plane to New York and back. I, I finished it. I couldn't put it down. Really? Okay. I'll have to read that. I'll have to read that. I went to a private like Christian school when I was in high school and they made us read a book called The Deceivers, which is so silly, but I wanted, I just like, I don't know. I just don't want to be taken. So my dad, you know, he's a correctional officer, right? And so he actually has a very hard time um, listening to pastors or rabbis, like, you know, husband and I are Jewish and um, he has a hard time because he sees so many similar phrases or techniques used by religious leaders as he would see used by inmates in the prison. To oh, yeah. The language of manipulation. Yes. Yeah. Cultish is great. It's all of, so it's literally about the language of fanaticism. And so it's, she's a linguist and it's all about like the linguistic language of manipulation Mm -hmm. and how cults use it it's oh I can't say enough good things how was it by the way was it like total like like abandoned town or was it like as busy as usual like in New York 
So here's the caveat. I had not been back to New York since 1999 when I went with my dance team to like take classes and see shows. So it had been a really long time. It was, I was all pre 9-11. I had not been back to Manhattan since 9-11 or before 9-11. And really we were only there for about 36 hours. So we stayed in Soho, Tribeca area. We didn't really venture too much. We went to Brooklyn to get a COVID test, but like we were literally there for like 10 minutes and then back. Um, stop by to see somebody. Um, and, and so there wasn't a ton of like, quote unquote, sightseeing. Um, but I will say we downloaded that one bite app because I just really wanted a good slice of pizza while we were in New York. And there were several that we walked to. And when we got there, they no longer existed. <laughs> People are like, oh, yeah, they closed last month. I'm like, update oh. the app. Um, but there were there was a lot there was a lot of like, for lease for rent, like, shop available for rent or things that were closed down uh you could tell that it had just really just yeah like covid had taken it down because a lot of stuff was still inside and it just it was it was kind of ghost town but not completely you could tell like who survived and who didn't i mean you're a small business owner as well as a hairstylist i imagine i assume so yeah just breaks your heart it really does yeah it was it was very interesting to see it was like oh man yeah Yeah. as I have to tell you though last time I was in New York this is perfect for the Halloween episode trust me so I was in New York October 2019 I was doing a I was doing some business meetings and so I was there one day and um one of my business meetings canceled and I was like well okay I don't have anything to do but I'm in New York I can I can figure out something to do you know so I'm like going through my options like I head down to ground zero. I'm like, I kind of wish I would have seen it when it was rubble because this feels weird. And then I couldn't figure it out. So I remembered that on an episode of Ghost Adventures, they went to this house. It's like the oldest house in Manhattan. And so I was like, oh, I'm going to find out what that is. So I Google it. I don't remember what it's called, but it's like the second highest peak in Manhattan. I had to go all the way up to Washington Heights, like get off on Amsterdam Avenue. It totally smelled like downtown LA. It smelled like the bacon wrap hot dogs, like 100%. And so I climb up this hill to get to this house. There's nobody there, but they have hours on the outside. And so I'm like, I'm just going to go in the gate, you know? So I go to the front door. There is a sign that says ring doorbell if you want a tour. So I ring the doorbell. And this woman, like she like, she's like very thin, like looks very like, I don't know, like ghostly, I guess. And she opens the door like very, like just a smidge. And she says, what do you want? <laughs> um, tour, I, please. Yeah. Can I get a tour? And she goes, but it costs $10. Okay, I'll pay. I'll pay ten dollars. I got ten dollars right here, and so she takes me into like their uh, their little area that's a gift shop, and they actually have signs like Dust Adventures was here and whatever. Pay the ten dollars. She's giving me like the most awkward tour ever, like as nervous as can be, like running off the script in her head, and then. She's like, yeah, so, and then if you go upstairs, George Washington stayed there for six months and, um, you know, uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda wrote part of 
uh, Hamilton up there and all the stuff. And I was like, cool, like, yeah, I've been to Mount Vernon, so cool. And, um, <laughs> and she's like, so is there anything else you want to know? And I go, yeah, like, what about the ghosts? <laughs> she goes, I don't know. There are none here. Stop it. We aren't talking about that today. And she just like storms off. <laughs> But, like why have the posters that the ghost like show was there and the, and it's the haunted house and then be like there's no ghosts here please leave yeah <laughs> it was so weird she's like why are you bothering me on a wednesday <laughs> i don't know well then why'd she take your ten dollars <laughs> exactly and then i was like left alone in this ghost house you know and um i didn't see any ghosts though oh well that's so funny. Um, here's another ghost story while we're telling ghost stories on Halloween. Um, when we went to LA, my daughter is a little murderino and she's like, mom, tell me the ghost stories about when you lived in LA. And I said, well, I don't, I don't really have too many ghost stories. Tell me, a, tell me a murder story. And I said, well, I can, I can take you up Cielo drive where the Manson murders happen. She's like, let's go. Right. So we drive through Beverly Hills and we go up Cielo drive um, the house is no longer there. Trent Reznor uh, recorded part of, I, I don't remember which album, but one mm. of the albums of Nine Inch Nails album and actually owns the door from that house, but the house was torn down. So we just went to like the property and looked at the other house, but I mm. showed her the um, the sister house, which is right down at the bottom of the hill, what which the original house looked like. Um, and we drove up there and she's like, wow, this is so cool. But I'm like, yeah. And we drove by the Mexican restaurant that Sharon Tate ate at the night before or the night of the murders. Mm -hmm. And she's asking me all these questions about Charlie Manson. And did he go to jail, mom? And I said, yes. And he died there. And she <laughs> like, was so interested. Um, and, you know, it's, it's just interesting to go to these places and to see these things uh, and, and to check it out. And it was just funny to me that she was so fascinated um, because Charlie Manson was like my first true crime fascination growing up too. I was like, wait a second. So like, he just like told people to do it and they like did it. Mm -hmm. So I'm now that I'm saying that out loud, I'm feeling like that's also where my cult fascination started as well. Mm -hmm. And the psychological aspect of, of true crime and true con, because yeah, Charlie Manson was, was my ticket in. And apparently it's also my daughter's ticket in as well. <laughs> I, well, I've got a Charlie Manson connection for you that I forgot until right now. <laughs> um, so when the last house we lived in, in LA, it was in Box Canyon. So if you like are in Topanga Canyon and then you just take Topanga Canyon all the way through the valley and then you go up, it becomes a Box Canyon. That's where, where Hell's Angels would have all of their, their like meth labs and stuff. Well, so we had a house there <laughs> and, so, um, and it was actually a campground that was made in like the 1920s and our house like the floor was just like raw brick and one of our walls was just the side of the canyon and it was crazy but the craziest part is that the cult lived there for a long time and the cult was called krishna venta that was like the leader his name was krishna venta and there's actually there's actually been several ghost shows about the people of this cult and they're never at my house i'm like I actually lived in the actual house. So anyway, it, it, it ended tragically. It was like he took all the people's wives and then like two of the jilted husbands, they did a suicide bomb or something, killed 12 people. And this was the house that what? I lived in. 
And it was like, and on the concrete was like all their names listed and Christian Vento's name was there. And we had the original like welcome sign and- They like put there. their names in the wet concrete and it's still yes. there? Wow. It's still there, yeah. And it's just up the road from where the family was. And what happened was that Charles Manson stayed with the Christian Aventa cult for a while when he was like transient. And, um, and he got most of his like ideas for the family and training for whatever he did with the family from the Christian Aventa cult. Wow. So yeah, I kind of forget that that's where he lived. But I'm going to actually tell you, I've lived in haunted places and I live in the South. I would 100% believe in ghosts and that place was not haunted. <laughs> so I lived in a haunted house when I lived in the South. I lived in Atlanta. Mm -hmm. I lived in Grant Park, Atlanta, which is where the zoo is. Yeah. Um, and it's just South of the Oakland Cemetery, which is like the cemetery where all the Confederate soldiers are buried. Atlanta was a medical hub during the civil war. So anybody that was um, wounded near fatally would be shipped down to Atlanta to this big medical right. hub. And most of these people died. Um, but I lived very close to the cemetery. I'm, I'm such a, I, I love cemeteries. I, they're mm -hmm. just beautiful to me. And it, Atlanta's Oakland Cemetery, one is segregated. So they definitely took that shit to their grave, which is wild to me. But there's yeah. also like this entire Confederate area. There's like an unknown soldier, like pit. Mm -hmm. um, there's a rich white area and a poor white area. It's incredible. Like it's wow. this cemetery, they don't bury people there anymore, but it is a really cool cemetery if you're ever in Atlanta to just check out. And they do really cool Halloween tours as well. <laughs> it's really cool. They decorate the cemetery with like bones sticking out of the ground i mean it's it's, it's, <laughs> it's so it's, irreverent <laughs> they have a really good sense of humor there at the oakland cemetery but when i lived in atlanta just a few blocks from here and it was all like this medical hub right all these soldiers mm -hmm. coming and dying we lived in this house on oakland street and uh all four of us that lived there i had me and three roommates we all experienced weird supernatural phenomenons None of it was the same, but we all experienced it. Um, I always smelled the smell of fire oh. and being from California, you know what a yeah. house fire smells like versus oh. a campfire versus a brush fire. You just know the smells. And this fire smelled like a house fire. It smelled plasticky. It smelled like fiber and wood and plastic and asbestos burning. You know what I mean? Like it smelled like that. And I would smell it all the time. And I would go from room to room going, did someone like leave a candle burning and it would freak me out all the time. And I go outside, <laughs> like it's just a, such a California thing. When you smell fire, you go outside, you look at the sky and you like, <laughs> you look and you look for smoke, you look for haze, you look for smell. You're like, is it more intense outside? And it would never smell outside. And I'm like, this is the weirdest thing. My roommate, Michelle would see shadows like of, of a figure walking but when she would the reflection but when she would look she could never see it I also sometimes could never open the refrigerator to the point where like I was yanking on it and it would not open and then I would be like seriously stop and then I would open it like like as like it was almost really? as if someone was holding the fridge shut it was the weirdest thing they're um, like think about that yogurt before you right eat they're like do you really <laughs> want to eat that I was like quit that shaming me ghost <laughs> let me open the fridge um Yes. And then I had another roommate who lived in the basement and she would be like, she was a, a waitress 
And so she'd get all her tips and she'd stack all her change up so she could take it to the bank. And she'd be like, were you guys in my room? And I'm like, no, why would it be in my room? She's like, my change is all knocked over all over my desk. Like my money's on the floor. Like things were moved. Like what's going on? I'm like, I have no idea. We had a dog, but very small. So it was not the dog. And the dog never went in the basement. Also, um, there was like an apparition that one of us would see. And mm-hmm. one time we opened up the basement door and it was standing in the stairwell. And this is when we realized that it was a Confederate soldier. He was in full like regalia with the full brass buttons, the hat, everything, and his hair in a ponytail. And she said, um, I, we were looking face to face and he whipped his head like this. And she said, I could see his ponytail like whip around and he turned around and he disappeared as he went down the stairs. So I was like, um, what? So then I, being very interested in ghost stories, um, started asking around the neighborhood. <laughs> I'm like your mom. I'm like, want to be my friend? And I met this man that had that lived next door and he had just moved back because his mom was sick and he had moved back to take care of her. And I said, can I ask you some questions about the neighborhood? And he's like, sure. And he came over to, to mow the lawn because someone stole our lawnmower. And he came over and he was, he was talking to me. And I said, I just have some questions about the house. And he said to me without any prompt, he goes, are you talking about the ghost in the basement? And I said, um, what? And he's like, yeah. He's like, I used to, I used to play over there. Um, and like things would fly across the room and hit us. And my mom said that she didn't want me playing over there anymore. I'm like, what? And I said, yeah. I said, but I have another question. I'm like, when was this house built? And he goes, oh, I think it was, it was rebuilt in the seventies because it burned down. And I said, okay, there we go. Thank you so much. <laughs> and so there I was like, that's the smoke I smell all the time is ghost smoke because this yeah. house burnt down 30 years ago. Thank you so much. So yeah. I definitely lived in a haunted house. It was a, an interesting, wild experience. Nothing weird ever happened to me except for these phantom smells and, and the fact that mm-hmm. those did not want me eating food. <laughs> um, but yeah, I definitely lived in a haunted house for a little over a year. It was a, it was an interesting experience. You know, it's in the South, it doesn't matter how religious you are. There's just like an awareness that like you're, you're just trampling on dead bodies, no matter where you go. There's a lot of stuff, bad stuff that happened here. So much blood, just like blood in the dirt. I remember like going up to like Kennesaw mountain and doing a civil war tour and then Mm -hmm. being like, check out this, this tree. And I was like, it's like bleeding. The tree's bleeding. And he's like, it's actually rust like what the tree is like seeping rust out of this tree. He's like, yep, that tree was hit by a cannonball in the civil war. And the tree was young enough that it didn't kill the tree. And the tree actually grew around the cannonball. And now the the rust from this iron cannonball seeps out of the tree trunk. I'm like, that is awesome. Yeah. And what an appropriate kind of symbol, right? Like you know, that it looks like blood and stuff like that. So it was serious. Like one of the coolest things I've ever seen. I'm like, are we for real right now? Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I've seen too much. I've heard too much. (laughs) And there's, there's been a house for sale by my parents' house for forever. And they're only, it's an acre. They're selling it for $60,000. Used to be a battlefield hospital. Yeah, used to be a battlefield hospital in the Civil War. <laughs> so, so only the bravest people need apply. Yes, exactly. And I was like, 100%, if I didn't have kids, maybe. 
I'm like, I want to buy it and just like, this is my haunted weekend vacation home. (laughs) Hey, that's not a bad Airbnb idea. (laughs) I mean, right? That'd be interesting. (laughs) Come stay at my haunted Airbnb. (laughs) There is a market. There is a market. (laughs) Yeah. um, It's just, it's interesting. I know like we're totally off the MLM subject, but it is Halloween. And so we're just sort of talking ghost stories. But I even saw when I was up in Roswell, Georgia, we did a ghost tour up there because that was a, it was a neutral zone for Union and Confederate soldiers to sort of like get a shower, take a day off, do things. Mm -hmm. Apparently it was a neutral zone, but it wasn't really, you know? Um, And there was all kinds of murders and and illegal hangings and things that were happening. Um, There was a Confederate or there was a union soldier that fell in love with the daughter of like this uh, Confederate supporter that like owned the local saloon. And he had him hung in the middle of town for treason. And they say that you can see the ghost of him and his, and the daughter, because then the daughter killed herself over it. And they dance in the square in Roswell, Georgia. That was a really cool story. Um, And then there was, we, I saw the face of the hangman in the window and I didn't even know it was the hangman. We were at this house and they're like, sometimes, you know, he'll make appearances. And I was like, yeah, no, I just saw him in the front window. And he's like, are you serious? And I said, yeah. And he goes, that's, that's, that's usually where the sighting is. I said, yeah, he was looking at me from the front window and he goes, we need to leave right now. And he made all of us leave. He goes, this man is the most evil, vile man in this town. He was the town hangman. And they would come back and have like hangman parties at this house after I'm like, yeah, no, yeah, no. His face was in the front window. And apparently it's been a gift shop a bunch of times. And everybody that's ever owned a store in this house says like everything goes missing. Things go flying glass breaks. It's just wild. But yeah, I mean, if you guys are interested in, in cool, like ghost tours, I love doing ghost tours in new Orleans is a great place to do a ghost tour. Um, great ghost tours in LA, great ghost tours in Atlanta. I'm all about it. I love creepy U.S. history. Yeah, (laughs) especially if it involves cults or ghosts. The creepiest thing in LA is the Cecil Hotel. Like, oh, the Cecil Hotel in downtown LA. Oh, yes. That story gets me every single time. I cannot. I cannot. Seriously? And isn't, um, did, wasn't the Cecil like the inspiration for um, American Horror Story Hotel? I think that I hotel think so. was the, was, I, I might be wrong, but it, but so it, much it would work anyway. There, like from the Black Dahlia to all kinds of things. But like most recently that one girl from Canada, I think. Yes, they found her body in the water tank. On yes. The and people were drinking it and they still can't figure out how she got in there. And mm <laughs> I know, like we totally turned this anti-MLM podcast into a true crime podcast today. (laughs) We're, you know what, like I'm 38, white female. Um, This is how I relax. So. (laughs) Right? It's so weird. I don't know why white women love murder so much. I fit into that too. I'm sorry. Like I'm I'm like, yep, nope. I'm super basic in that way. Um, Mm -hmm. When I say love murder, I don't mean like love murder. I just, it's fast. The psychological aspect of it is fascinating to me. Growing up, I I wanted to be a criminal psychologist. That was like what I really Mm -hmm. wanted to do. Um, I'm definitely not, but I I talk about that kind of stuff now. So it sort of all works in. Uh, But yes, it's fascinating to me. I think that every woman of a certain age has had close calls with 
Yes. Dangerous stuff. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Kind of like that could have been, I don't know, maybe there's like something that's like, that couldn't be, that could have been me, but it wasn't, or I don't know, something weird about that. Like some, some vulnerability there. Yeah. You know, and I think a lot of times you see a woman who's murdered and being, you know, it's a white woman who's murdered and you're a white woman. And you're like, that could have been me. Like mm-hmm. I could have been that person at the bar. I could have been that person just trying to get a, a taxi that night, just trying to get home. I, oh, that I, could have been me. I dated in the city, you know, I dated people in LA. I dated people in Chicago. I, you know what I mean? Like a million different things could have gone wrong, a million different things. And, um, sometimes things did go wrong, but thank God nothing, um, permanent. All right. So at the end, we do these rapid fire questions. Mary, are you ready? One word that encompasses how you feel about MLM. Control. Brilliant. One warning to somebody that wants to join one of these MLMs. Uh, Assess your mental state before doing it and your reasons why. Yeah, right? Don't get that short haircut when you break up with your boyfriend. And don't join an MLM when you're in a vulnerable position. Right. Or if you're desperate for money or whatever, that's do it because you've thought about it because you just want a fun thing to do with your friends. But if it's about something that feels desperate, then don't do it. Have realistic expectations. Mm -hmm. The worst MLM in your opinion. Uh, You know, there's some really bad ones out there. I think the one that annoys me the most is Rodan and Fields. And I think it's just because maybe I just know more people that were in it, but like they've, okay, I'm gonna, this is gonna be an unpopular opinion for some people on here, but I see those eyelashes and they look like these spider legs coming out. Like they do not look real on it. it I don't know, I just don't like it. But also it's just like, they keep saying, "I I got promoted this week or I got, you know what I mean? It just, I just, maybe the people that I know, I think, you know what, it all comes down to the people that you know who are in it. Because in the defectors group, somebody said, well, you know, Pampered Chef isn't that bad, you know, as far as like recruiting people. I'm like the, the worst like hard pressure pitch I've ever heard of an MLM was at a Pampered Chef party. So I think it all depends on who you associate with it. But I'm gonna say Rodan and Phil. I mean, to your point, absolutely. I feel like I could put out a call to action to any MLM company and get a horror story. Like yes. I could be like, if you were in Ronan and Fields and have a horror story, email me. I'm definitely going to get emails just because I said that, but it's true. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. You're going to get them. You're, I will find the horror story in every single MLM. So there's nobody out there that's going to be able to tell me like my MLM would never do that. Cause I will find that one exception and I right. will interview them on the podcast. Absolutely. <laughs> Hardest lesson that you learned while in MLM. Um, yeah, I talked about this a little bit before, but I think, you know, I was listening, I was listening to Megan Kelly's podcast the other day, which I was so happy to listen to you on. I listened to every single one and she had this guy on there who's talking about stoicism so interesting, definitely worth the talk, but um, about how often the correct decision is the one that takes the most courage. And 
if you're like, say, you know, like say like you want to leave your job and the easiest thing to, is to stay and the hardest thing is to go, probably you should go with the harder thing because you, you have some fear of some risk or whatever, but that's what creates virtue. And I think that I saw LuLaRoe as an easy solution and not a courageous one. Yeah. Wow. That's very poignant and deep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I can use that, like the easy or the difficult, like I can think back to many decisions I made where I'm like, ah, it's easier to stay in this bad situation mm-hmm. than to do all of the things I need to do to get out of it. Especially as someone with ADHD and like executive dysfunction, where I look at something and I'm like, ah, Somebody sees like, oh, just clean your room, right? Or just put your clothes away. And I'm like, I got to make room in the closet and I got to get the hangers out. And And it's Mm -hmm. like, it becomes a very daunting task. But obviously the more important one is to put the clothes away versus leaving them on the ground. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's like, you can take that and, and do something as simple as just putting the laundry away or leaving an abusive situation. Mm -hmm. The, the harder choice is usually the right choice. Right. Right. I mean, it makes sense, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, and then our favorite question, the positive takeaway from your time in MLM. Um, positive. T- oh, gosh, I wish I would have thought about this one. Um, I think, you know, um, because I have my own small business now, which is like, you know, making luxury cakes. It's like, there's literally no crossover between that and LuLaRoe. And um, I think that there are so many times where I feel like, you know, because I I go around the world teaching, like, you know, people how to use my technique and stuff like that. And sometimes I'll be like, oh gosh, the orders aren't coming in this month. I should just put up a, you know, a workshop for next month and make some quick, easy money. And um, that temptation is with me all the time. And it's not a good one. It's not one that prepares for the future. And I feel like so much was at LLR was like figuring out how to turn and burn, right? You know, um, oh, just quickly put this up and then sell this and then sell this and you'll have money to buy more and then you'll have money to buy this capsule or whatever and yeah just um, like put it up really quick it's like so easy it just takes five minutes oh my god right and so I can more easily identify those feelings of urgency and say okay like um you know let's let's work this out so what if I do this then I won't have time for this you know, um, if I do a workshop in November, what if I'm, I'm actually actively passing up an opportunity to build my business in a better way and that might, fe- that I might feel some pain for it for, in a, for a couple of weeks, you know, that kind of thing. It's almost like learning what not to do from the chaos of LuLaRoe. They're like, that was a hot mess. Right. And like the positivity is learning the, the goodness from the chaos. Yeah. Well, and, oh, I got a good one. Cause I remember like in our like teams group chat, it was just constantly brought up. Why don't they hire a CEO? Why are they hiring all their family members to do this? Because I think in a way, a lot of people 
I, I mean, personally, like I've read reviews about Lula Rich where they're like the first episode, like Deanne seems kind of like a badass, you know, and she is in, in, in many ways, but there was just no recognition of when things were out of their scope. And so um, we were always kind of like, why don't they hire people who know what they're doing? And I think that um, just always keeping in the back of my head, like when is the time to turn this over? You know? you know what, like you saying that just triggered that for me too, because I've always been the kind of person that's like, I'll just do it. Like mm-hmm. if you want something done, right. You just do it yourself. And, um, so toxic, right. Because right. it just creates this, like, I have to do everything. I have this like hustle culture. And then I'm like going to bed at three o'clock be- because I have, right. I have to be the one to do everything. And in the last month or so of getting so busy and having to travel and doing all of these appearances. And like, it's just, it's unbelievably wild. I'm so thankful. And thank you guys so much for all of your support and your kind words. And you guys are amazing, but it's, it's so much that I'm now realizing I can't be a one man show anymore. Like I need someone to help me. And yeah, like what you just said I, I realized that I can't be nepotistic, like nepotistic about this. And I have to hire people that know what they're doing to help me because I can't grow without legitimate help too. So yeah, you know, I don't want to make the same mistakes LuLaRoe did by hiring just my best friends to do things for me who don't know what they're doing. Um, yeah. What an excellent point that I really just sort of kind of realized right now. Send your resumes to, (laughs) right. I'm like, call to action, you guys. (laughs) I mean, yeah. If you're an expert, I would love to hire from within, obviously. Um, I don't have any money to give you yet, but hopefully within the next three months, within the next three months, I'm hoping here, I guess this is the announcement by 2022, I would like to be hopefully hiring a couple people to help me and having employees in a, in a, in a way. So there we go. There's the announcement. I just put it out there. Universe, do with it what you will. 2022, that's that's my year to really take this really super legit. It's such a heart pounding decision because like the moment you hire people, you feel responsible. I haven't hired anybody. I've hired my husband, but um, you know, it's like, uh, as a small business owner, I've been reading like just like board panda articles of like horrific boss stories. I'm like, okay, I can't be that person, you know? Right. And I think the best bosses are the ones that like already think that, right. That they're like, Mm -hmm. I don't want to be that horrible person. So I'm going to do as much as I possibly can to educate myself on how to not be that person. Those that are already conscious of those things are already doing the work, right? Yeah. If you're coming and saying, I don't know how to do this. And this is what I'm concerned about. Like you're already in the right headspace. If you're concerned about that and want to, and want to go forward that way. Yep. Very, at least trying to be not narcissistic about the whole thing. Just absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. I'm so excited for what's to come for you and your cake business. Oh my God. I'm so excited. I'm at Please, everybody, follow Mary because yes, ten bloom cakes and Roberta, you follow me too, okay? Yeah, I will. <laughs> I will. 
Yeah. You're, you're so great. Thank you so much for, oh, for talking and, and sharing all these spooky stories. I know that we sort of, we took some pretty big tangents across MLM and true crime and cults yeah, and all well, kinds of stuff and ghost stories. So I think, I mean, I think this was a great Halloween episode. I think, I think MLM can feel very heavy. Um, <laughs> Sounds so weird because we're talking about ghosts and murder and stuff, but sometimes that stuff is just like a real distraction from something that people actually went through, right? That actually experienced and are having or looking their wounds from from, and it's like okay, maybe my life isn't so bad because I'm still alive. Um, yeah, you know, I I I, sur- I survived it, so I didn't let it. Uh, I didn't succumb to it. So yeah, who knows. I don't know why. There's some psychologist who knows. Thank you so much for listening to Life After MLM. Please don't forget to like and subscribe and share with all of your anti-MLM friends as well. See you next time.